Peter Henriquez is professor of history emeritus at George Washington University, where he taught American and Virginia history with an emphasis on the founding fathers, especially George Washington. His latest book is entitled First and Always. He calls this book a new portrait of George Washington. We talked with Professor Henriquez about our first American president. Professor Peter Henriquez, in your book, which is a new portrait of George Washington, on subtitled on the cover, uh, First and Always, this is the title, you say that George Washington's favorite brother was Jack. I've never heard that before. Yes, he had. He was the eldest of, of, of five siblings. He had three younger, younger, younger brothers. Uh, Jack, or J- actually his name was John, but he was called called Jack. Uh, and two two younger brothers and a, and a sister, Betty. Uh, Jack was definitely his favorite brother. He he communicated with him a number of times, and there, he gave him advice, asked him to do things. For example, to uh, connect with the Fairfax family. He said to Jack, these people can be of great service to us, uh, keep our relationship good. When when his brother died, uh, Washington said he had bid a final farewell uh, to his beloved brother, the close friend of his youth and companion of his older, older years. Uh, he was one of the people that he was very frank in his letters during the Revolutionary War, too, uh, and was not as close with Charles and Samuel. What was his relationship with his other brothers and his half-brother? They, they, were, they were not particularly close. Uh, uh, both, both Charles and, and Samuel moved out, out, of the, out of the area. They both uh, died before Washington did, even though they were younger. Uh, Samuel had a lot of problems with uh, with debt and things like that. Washington did take uh, and help the children of both Charles and uh, Samuel in terms of helping them with it, with their with their education and things like that. So he was concerned about the family, but never close. There's relatively few uh, few letters and contacts between both of those and his relationship with his sister Betty. Uh, she lived in, uh, in in Kenmore, right near Washington's, uh, the home that Washington built for his for his mother, uh, and they did not have as close a relationship as one as one might have expected. There was a little known letter that Betty uh, wrote to Washington as as president, uh, where she basically kind of uh, says, "Don't you have any time to?" To, to write me in connection with a crisis that she was uh, that she she was she was facing Washington after all you know he was so involved uh, in in the activities especially as president consumed in his time uh, that is that aspect of his family relationship was not close uh, but he certainly dealt a lot with nieces and nieces and nephews I think actually there'd be a good book to Right on Washington, the patriarch, and uh, his relationships with with various members of his uh, of his family. I, that has not been done in in great depth. I think it would be an interesting topic to explore. You do write in this short book compared to other books you've written about George Washington and the founders uh, about his relationship with his mother, Mary Ball Washington. What was it? It I, I entitled a chapter. 
complicated, very complicated, the relationship. Uh, Mary's reputation is kind of toggled from Mary, the mother of almost mother of Jesus, mother of uh, of Washington, a saint-like figure. Uh, recently, it's been a much tougher slog for her over the last several generations. Uh, Ron Cherno is very tough on her and, and his wonderful uh, book on, on Washington and James Flexner, uh, another very influential biographer, is very critical. I, I, there's no question that they had a strained relationship, especially in the in in the later years. Uh, but I see her as a very significant figure in shaping his his life. His father died when Washington was only 11 years old. Uh, he's the eldest of uh, of the of five siblings uh, uh, by by uh, by Washington's father's second wife Mary, and. He almost becomes the man of the house at the age of 11. It's a tough job. Um, Mary had suffered a lot of losses in her life. She's a very strong-willed, demanding, but needy person. And Washington is faced. She wants to use Washington. Certainly Washington is by far her favorite child. And she wants him to worry about her. And Washington has much more ambitious goals of making a name for himself in the world. So there's, there is a, uh, a constant tension. But to me, it's interesting. Washington, after his father dies, the family is very much second-tier uh, Virginia gentry. Uh, and unless Washington gets the support uh, of important people, you know, Virginia is a very hierarchical society in the 18th century, he could never have advanced. And the fact that he wins the support of people like uh, the Fairfax family and Governor Dinwiddie uh, and John Robinson and Landon Carter, people like that, if he didn't have the kind of character and work ethic and morals, uh, they would not have helped them. And I think you have to give uh, Washington's um, mother credit for that. I think she did leave him. You know, She ne- seemed never to give him the kind of praise that we all want. And Washington really, uh, I think, has a constant lifelong desire for approval, in part because he might not have gotten that kind of thing as a, as a young person. So there's, there's tension, uh, certainly on money issues. And later on, there's a, a it's not it's not the kind of ideal, you know, you'd say great men come from great mothers. Uh, in this case, that's not really the case. But she's she's a very influential person. And I think you have to have a balance between some of her strengths and weaknesses and the impact. They were they were a lot more alike uh, than perhaps uh, Washington would have would have uh, wanted to accept. How many years did you spend in the classroom? Uh, well, I, I've, most of my, my full-time teaching career was, uh, was at, uh, at George Mason University. I got my doctorate in the University of Virginia in 1970, and I was in the classroom from then until I retired in 2005. Uh, it's kind of scary. I hate to, you know, almost partly in pride and partly frightening to say I'm 83 years old. I don't feel 83 years old, but I've been retired now for 17 years, at least retired from the classroom. But happily, I've been able to go and give presentations on Washington to 
Williamsburg and Gadsby's Tavern, Mount Vernon, and other places in George Mason's learn, lifelong learning institute. So I've, I've, I really have kind of the best of both worlds. I'm retired, but I'm, but I'm doing what I like to do, uh, and that is uh, work on this <laughs> remarkably fascinating man who uh, will will keep you busy as long <laughs> as long as you live. You'll never you'll never be able to go through all the material that he created and all the books that were caused to be written about him. Because so many books have been written about him and by a lot of very talented historians, I want to ask you a question about historians and the feeling of competition among the historians when they write about somebody like George Washington. Is there such a thing? Well, you know, I think a good historian has a touch of competitiveness in him. Obviously, you like to think that you're making a significant contribution uh, to whatever subject you're writing about. So in that sense, in that sense, there's a competition. Uh, but I think the general tendency, especially in the last 20, 25 years, Washington is beginning to really come into his own uh for uh, for a long time, he was just viewed as this saint-like uh, figure, you know, larger than life, un- unknowable. Uh, but in the last years, people have come to grips with him as a, you know, a remarkably skilled political leader, a man of tremendous force and personality. You have books like Ron Chernow's Pulitzer Prize winning book, Joe Ellis. Uh, they're both wonderful wordsmiths, and most historians aren't. Uh, there's a smaller book by John Roadhamel uh, on the wonder of the age, which is a very good brief biography that they understand the force of Washington's character and personality. I'm reviewing a new book by David Stewart on the political rise of Washington, and I'm not finished it, but it's an excellent, an excellent book. And I'm sure all of us, you know, when I write first and always, would I like it? to get a lot of publicity and, and, and sell a lot of copies. Sure. Uh, so in that sense, it's competitive, but it's not a matter of, uh, of trying to, you know, fight to beat another historian. It's more, at least from my own perspective, it's more hopefully to, to say something worth, worth the time and effort of the reader to, uh, to spend his time doing it because Washington is such an important uh, figure and he's such a complicated figure. Uh, he merits the books and many more books will be written about him. I, I don't doubt it for a moment and I've, uh, many of them will help us understand him a little bit better. We may never understand him completely. That doesn't mean we can't get closer to understanding this rather remarkable man. Quote from your book, evidence indicates that George Washington cared more about the immortality of his legacy than he did about the immortality of his soul. Yeah, that probably will will rub some people the wrong wrong way or upset some people because there is a strong effort uh, to make Washington particularly religious, especially among evangelical Christians. There's a move that he was an evangelical Christian. The evidence just simply doesn't doesn't support that. It's amazing. In, his, in all of his personal records, he never mentions Jesus Christ once or synonyms for him like 
uh, savior or redeemer or things along that line. That's not to say that Washington does not believe in God. He's a strong believer in a divine providence. He believes that that providence protected him. Uh, but it, it it is interesting the amount of time and effort he spends on what I call the desire for secular immortality to be remembered uh, in ages past, and very little concern uh, about what's going to happen in the afterlife. He's There is some kind of afterlife. He's quite vague on it. And I was surprised whenever he talks about uh, the death of his, like his parting with from Lafayette when his uh, when his brother Jack dies, I bid a final farewell, uh, never to see him again, uh, never to see my mother again, never to see Lafayette again. E- even though he, when people uh, uh, die and he writes letters of consolation, which he is, knows it's a very tricky thing to do, um, and he urges people to find comfort in, in, in religion and philosophy, but he never in any of his letters actually says uh you will meet with your beloved ones in the in the more traditional sense of meeting loved ones in heaven and i I was kind of kind of struck by that uh he wants to build the kind of reputation he would be he would be happy that we're having this podcast on him he might not be happy on some of the things i say in the podcast but the fact uh, that he would be remembered yeah that was he had a very very strong drive to do that as many of most of the founding fathers uh did and and at the time was recognized as one of the the strongest noblest minds desire fame uh, uh fame across across the ages and washington did that i think when you look at his correspondence and what he did i think it's it's clear he wants that and he just doesn't he takes the view what what will happen in the future you know he's he's in the he as once he said i'm in the hands of a good providence that's the way he put it when he was thought he was dying as president whether i die now he said or 20 years later i'm in the hands of a good providence uh and i'll trust that providence but he doesn't uh focus much attention uh, on it. He, when his beloved stepdaughter, uh, Patsy, dies of an epileptic fit when she's only 17, he does say she, she, she's gone to a happier place. Uh, but that's a relatively rare uh, comment in his writing. So why did you put in your book the comment that you wear the George Washington medallion around your neck? Well, I was. <laughs> when did you decide that? <laughs> well, you know that when I was writing the book, if you read the book, it has a little more conversational tone than most books on 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 Washington. I'm, I mean, I'll often use the first person, and I remember being told, "Don't do that," you know, in in books. This is my own kind of reflection. Uh, I wanted to let people know where I'm coming from. I've spent a you know, the last 20 or 25 years kind of focusing on Washington. I admire the man greatly. Uh, I do go on to say that, you know, I want to know the man warts and all. And like all people, he has warts. But uh, 
many years ago, my four, I have four sons, and they gave me as a special gift a gold medallion of Washington as a coin. I decided to wear it around, around my neck uh, because I really see him. Uh, a lot of his advice on how to live is very is, is very helpful. In other words, he's a, he is a good role model in, in, in many ways. I know I have a, a quote on my, uh, on my wall from him where he says, I hope I shall always uh, possess a sufficient degree of fortitude to, ma- to bear without murmuring uh, any stroke which may happen. And I think as you get older, I think especially it's, it's good to remember if you try to have a sufficient degree of fortitude to bear without murmuring uh, any stroke which may happen. There's a certain amount of stoical uh, challenge that, that Washington lives in. He's, he's admirable in his, in his work ethic. He's admirable in his, in his, in his character. Uh, and so in that sense, like some people might wear wear a cross in connection with their uh, Christian uh, beliefs. Uh, I wear this kind of as a symbol that uh, I really admire what Washington uh, stands for, even though obviously I'm not happy with all the things he did. He's an 18th century uh, man uh, with with a very different view on democracy and obviously on things like uh, race and Native Americans that I'm not as comfortable with, but you have to judge the man in the context of his time. Well, speaking of criticism, you say he was among the least selfless men that ever lived. Explain that one. Yeah, I think one of the one of the main things, and, and people will constantly use the word that Washington is his selfless service to his country. There's no question he sacrifices a tremendous amount of his, of his lifetime and and effort for the good of his country. And in that sense, you could say he he is he's doing things that on the surface might look selfless, but Washington. Washington is very much concerned with his own interest. I think one of the things I liked about Washington for you can be a strong patriot and be concerned with your own interest at the same time. Uh, Washington is, if you read his papers, I mean, he's he's very concerned with advancing his economic interest. He ends up owning 50,000 acres of land. His business dealings are fair, but uh, but but very but very tough uh, in 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 that in in that sense. Um, so he uh, phrase phrase the question one more time, Brian. There was another point I wanted to make, and it slipped out of an old man's mind. Ask me that. Ask ask that point again. I want to bring one other point up. Yeah, it was all, it was all about your quote that he was among the least selfless men right. that ever lived. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's 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 selfish in in my sense. He's selfish in the right way that he's he he does seek uh, honor and and fame. He's not he's not doing it without any concern for himself. But it's a self interest in a very deep and I think proper way where one gets the sense of satisfaction of making sacrifices to achieve a goal. But it isn't it isn't that he has no skin in the game, so to speak. He he does this and makes these sacrifices in the hope 
of receiving secular immortality in the future and praise uh, from uh, from people uh, in current time as well. So uh, that, that's what that's what I mean when I say uh, he's not selfless. He is concerned with his own interest, but he makes a great a great sacrifice. Can you tell us? I don't want to say once and for all, but give us a roundup on his relationship to slaves. His relationship to slaves. Uh, this is. There's no question. This is the most troubling aspect of Washington's life. It's the most troubling aspect of the American story. You know the the corrosive chain of racism and slavery. You know, it snakes through the new republic. I think it diminishes every life it touches. It diminishes George Washington's life. There's no question. There's no question about it. Uh, and I can understand, particularly, why people of color have a problem completely embracing Washington. Uh, but this feeling of that he, you know, statues should be pulled down. That Washington uh, should be removed as a as an admirable figure. Uh, I just think it's it's wrong. You have to judge people within the time they lived. You can't take them out of that. Presentism is very much a danger that I that I see. I mean, African slavery was a part of Washington's life, as familiar as breathing. Think if you think think of put yourself in Washington's position. He's born into uh, a slave holding society. Forty percent of Virginians are slaves for life. His parents believe in slavery. His church believes in slavery. His Bible, his government, all the society leaders give sanction to slavery. How can it not be that Washington growing up simply accepts that just the way we would do if, if on, on virtually any other other issues. Uh, to me, the surprise is, given his background, he does move uh, consistently in the direction of seeing slavery as an evil that must be eventually uh, eliminated. It's, for pragmatic reasons, he doesn't like it. For political reasons, uh, for philosophical reasons. And he does free his the slaves, his own slaves, at his at his death. He's the only founding father. He's the only founding father to do that, uh, and that I think is significant. Should he have done more? The critics say absolutely. He's the most prominent person. He did not speak out publicly against slavery, uh, and therefore he is uh, guilty, uh, and really should be. The fact that he owns slaves. I mean, people say, how can anyone who owns slaves be an admirable person? Uh, you know, William Lloyd Garrison, the great abolitionist, said, told his listeners that Washington was writhing in the flames uh, of eternal hellfire because he's a man stealer and nothing else uh, compensates for that. But I just don't I don't see that that's a fair way judging. Um, there's a new show just on CNN on Lincoln. And, you know, Lincoln was willing uh, to have the 13th Amendment to the Constitution be uh, that slavery can never be uh, outlawed by, by, the, by the federal government. Um, what, what, what Lincoln said, what he did about slavery and the colored race, he did 
to save the Union, and George Washington could have given that exact quote. If he had tried to strike against slavery, he would have failed, and the Union would have been destroyed, and there would be no way of keeping it together. It's so very fragile. Washington is willing. His top goal is to preserve the Union. He is... That's the threat of his life as a leader, the American Union. Slavery is an evil. He recognizes it as an evil. But given the realities of the time, he could, to strike at slavery uh, at that time would have been Im- Im- impossible. Just, just like in terms of race relations, things that are now insisted upon doing uh, for racial equality – 50 years ago would have been just unthinkable. Martin Luther King would have never taken the position uh, on race equality and some of the projections that people want to do to right the wrongs uh, because it would not have been accepted. Times change, uh, and you have to judge Washington within his time frame. It, he called it the only unavoidable subject of regret in his life, and... You know, I don't you don't celebrate this part of Washington, uh, but you can't take away the fact that we should commemorate so much of what he did otherwise. So back to when he died, how many and you say he had 50,000 acres of land, uh, how many slaves did he have? But more than that, how many slaves were there on his property and how many of them belonged to his wife? He, there were 316 or 317 slaves at Mount Vernon at the time of Washington's death, some of which were rented. Washington himself, now I may not have these figures exactly right because I've not looked at them in some time. And with an old man's memory, I, won't, uh, I wouldn't want to be quoted exactly. But he has about 128 slaves that he owns uh, himself. Uh, he cannot free under the terms of... Uh, Martha, who, uh, when when her husband uh, died, uh, she inherited a great many slaves, which would then go on to her offspring. Of course, Washington and Martha had no children of their own, uh, and Washington could not free uh, those slaves by by law. So, uh, it, it was in the one. One twenty-eight sticks in my mind. It might have been a few more that were completely owned by him and that were freed. Uh, that were freed in his will. Although interestingly enough, he frees them at the time of Martha's death because there was so much intermarriage between the slaves. Washington felt that freeing some while others would be enslaved would would cause trouble, uh, and he didn't want Martha to to face that. Interestingly enough. Uh, Martha, within a year after Washington's death, decides to free his slaves early because there are rumors. Of course, if she's dead, then the slaves become free, and she actually apparently feared for her for her own life and moved to to free the slaves. It's fascinating to me that George Washington is an extremely thoughtful uh, person and a planner sets up a system that actually, uh, in his own plantation, trying to free his slaves, sets it up where his wife uh, feels endangered. And if you don't think it's complicated <laughs> to get uh, to end slavery, uh, this is a good example of just how complicated it would be. 
I'm going to switch subjects completely, and it'll sound like it's okay. from very serious to not so serious. But I really <clears throat> have never seen a good accounting of the fact that George Washington had almost no teeth. And I say that at the same time that George, John Adams had no teeth. And the reason I bring this up is how could he have been the leader that he was with a contraption in his mouth uh, that sounds horrible and painful? Uh, how did he do that? And do you, is there any literature on that? Did he ever write about it? Did anybody ever talk about it who was around him? Uh, it's a... It's a fairly per- some people make there there are comments uh, that uh, that that Washington's teeth were bad. One of the I honestly think one of the reasons he did not smile is because uh, his smile would not have been as appealing. Uh, that the uh, it gets less attention. It's something I've not devoted a great deal of attention to myself. He he suffers a significantly by the time he's he loses his teeth as a young man i mean he has problem by the way he inherited it from his mother his mother uh, had very bad teeth and and lost her lost her teeth uh and by the time he's president he only has he only has one one tooth left uh so you know the image might be that these fake teeth make washington an unimpressive figure but clearly from the constant comments of people uh he was an extremely impressive uh figure and won all sorts of praise for his physical uh demeanor um but there's no doubt it caused him a significant amount of physical difficulty and the famous picture by Gilbert painting by Gilbert Stewart was when he was having particular trouble with his teeth and that kind of shows up maybe in the both in the in the close look at the picture and also maybe that he's not uh, uh smiling or he looks in a bit a little bit of discomfort mentioning the Gilbert Stewart just said I know it's a slight aside but to the the wonderful statue of Washington by uh, Udon, who came from France, spent a week with Washington, took a life mask. The main cap, the main statue is in the Capitol uh, in Richmond. The, the bust is left at, at Mount Vernon, its most valuable possession. I take a picture of that on the cover of my of my uh, book, First and Always. Uh, this catches the man's charisma in a way that the later the later pictures uh, don't. How volatile was his temper? Apparently very volatile, <laughs> but rarely used. And actually, you know, if you if you have a strong temper uh, and rarely, you know, if, if if a teacher shouts at her students all the time, it has very little impact. If she almost never does and once does, it scares people. Uh, there's a wonderful quote from uh, from from Jefferson where he talks about uh, Washington when he was upset by some of the criticisms that were going on in connection with the Jay affair, and um, the uh, Washington lost his temper. And Jefferson writes about uh, about this. Uh, there's no question he was he had a very volatile temper. Uh, and Gouverneur Morris said, "People who know him see passion so 
almost out of control, but he goes on to say, but it is controlled. And, and that's one of the things to me that I was most surprised when I first studied Washington. I'm beginning, I'm so happy to see it come out in more and more books. Washington is a man of tremendous passion. People don't realize that because it is controlled passion. Uh, uh, he is he, a man of almost granite self-control, but it isn't that he doesn't have passions. He's managed to master them. Uh, there's a great quote by the Stoic philosopher. I don't know whether Washington ever read him, Epictetus, uh, which Epictetus says, no man is, is, is free who is not master of himself. And Washington had a hell of a challenge trying to master himself. And I think he did a remarkable job with very volatile aspects uh, of his uh, of his personality and character. Never quite perfect, but surprisingly well done. If you were, based on what your research uh, has um, coughed up over the years, bad expression, if you were sitting at a table... With George Washington, just the two of you, what would the interaction be? Would he listen to you? Uh, or would you just sit there and listen to him based on what you know of his personality? Well, I, you know, I, it's a good question. Washington, honestly, I don't think would like me particularly. Uh, and the reason I say that is because he would like the fact that I emphasize what it abs- that he was the most important leader in American history. He would like that. Uh, Washington wants to be famous. He doesn't want to be known. Uh, and I want to know him. So, you know, the fact that I would bring up things about Sally Carey Fairfax or his sensitivity to criticism or the way he treats John Adams, or he, he would not he would not like my emphasis on trying to get to know him better. If I had the opportunity uh, to do that, you know, it'd be I'd say, where, where did I go wrong? <laughs> you know, and I'd listen. And I'm, I'm sure one of the things you'd say I went wrong is when I emphasize that he that he does, in fact, want uh, adulation while he's around uh, to enjoy it. He always denied uh, that that he wanted wanted that. So, you know, that I've often often thought of that because I I admire Washington greatly. Uh he would probably be courteous because <laughs> Washington is a very courteous person, but I don't I don't think that he would would appreciate my effort uh, to kind of get at what makes him tick. Let me ask it a different way. Let's say you're at the table and you're just a professor of history. You're not a writer of George Washington's life. How would he treat you and how did he treat people who were around him? I mean, you say at one point Uh, people treat him godlike. Right. Uh, Washington is the epitome of courtesy, Uh, always respecting people. And one of the one of the appealing parts of his character is, although he was obviously such a man of eminence and so much, uh, so much power, and, and and people so admired him, it never went to his head. I mean, he's the, the, he's a man really. Modesty is as much a part of his character as courage, and you would not expect that. He always, if someone tips his hat to him, he'll tip his hat to the person. He is will not 
obviously a superior person. You know, there's no question. He, you know, it's like is LeBron James an ordinary basketball player? No, you know, he knows he's not an ordinary basketball player. George Washington knows he's an exceptional person, uh, but he doesn't have that. It could easily lead to narcissism and arrogance, but it doesn't. Uh, maybe because of the way he was brought up and the desire for for approval. But, so Washington is uh, uh, unfailingly courteous uh, to people, and only if he trusts them, then he is in a more relaxed mood. Uh, well, I forget the exact, exact words without looking up. Ab- Abigail Adams uh, put put it put it this way that he. Um, there's a certain amount of demeanor, uh, that dignity that demands respect, but it's combined with an affability that engenders love and, and affection. That's not an exact quote, but that's the, that's the thrust of it. Washington had an ability. Uh, one of the points in this new book by David Stewart, which I thought was an interesting one, I didn't stress enough in my book, is that Washington was able to engender trust in people. The way he treated people, the way he acted, people had confidence in him and, and trust in him. And that, uh, that was, that's a very impressive and important trait in order to have him be a successful leader. The name of the book is First and Always. The subtitle is A New Portrait of George Washington. And our guest has been Professor Emeritus Peter R. Henriquez. Thank you very much, sir, for your time. Thank you, Brian. It's always a pleasure to, pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Mm-hmm.